This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. So, Trav, I actually have used BetterHelp in the past, and it was a really, really great experience. I loved my therapist. He gave me a lot of great tools that I still use to this day. You know, without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. Good news is, therapy does work. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be, really. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and you would like some tools to help. Maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever it is you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And we've got a special offer for No Filler listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash nofiller. That's betterhelp.com slash nofiller. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. And welcome back to No Filler, the music podcast dedicated to sharing the often overlooked hidden gems that fill the space between the singles on our favorite records. My name is Travis. I got my brother Quentin with me. And what you heard there in the intro was R.E.M.'s very first single, Radio Free Europe. And Q, that was the song that you said kind of you're, you're most familiar with on this record, right? Yeah, this is the only song that I remember. It's the first track on the record too isn't it yeah that's right okay so yeah. Kiri, would you say that you wanted to begin at the begin oh my god that's a reference to a uh song off life's rich pageant which we covered that was the um yeah so that yeah this is not the first time that we have done an episode on rem we talked about life's rich pageant but this is a band that we have mentioned and referenced probably dozens and dozens of times throughout the history of this this podcast, right? And what's cool about R.A.M. is, you know, like for for instance, today we decided to jump back to R.A.M. because we've been kind of hanging out in that, you know, college radio, quote unquote, alternative rock, uh, new wave kind of stuff that was happening around this time. Uh, you know, but I could, you know, in another three months, we could be covering an entire, entirely different genre, entirely different decade. And there would be an album of R.E.M. that we could point to and play. Yeah, well, to your point, like, in the 90s when we were, when we were kids, that's when they had hit, like, ma- big mainstream success with some of those singles you talked about. Like, Losing My Religion is, is kind of what, like, really blew them up, right? But they've sort of evolved, like you said, up until, like, the 2000s, and then they kind of, kind of went away for a little bit. But, like, yeah, since the beginning, since 83, when this record came out and radio free europe actually came out as a single two years prior to that they had sort of like garnered some attention by critics and stuff like that they didn't really get you know they they, they didn't really chart very high on the billboard lists or, or anything like that they didn't sell that many records but they had always had this sort of like this reputation and like this call like you said college rock and stuff like that they were kind of the the band that you think about when you think of college rock. And maybe we can talk about what exactly that is, right? Because it REM to me is what I think about when I think of college rock. 
But again, it's like, what what the hell does it mean? Right? What is, yeah, what does that mean? We sort of mentioned how like, uh, you know, we, we've we've covered, you know, pretty extensively uh, in February, uh, Miracle Legion, right? That's the band that went on to become Polaris. You know, go back and listen to our last two episodes. Last, uh, yeah, the last two um, non-what-you-heard episodes to hear us talk about that band pretty extensively. But we touched briefly on like, yeah, the Miracle Legion was another band that was getting, you know, airplay and on college radios, but it was mostly bland, bands like REM and like, you know, the B-52s and the Smiths and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, so like, let me, let me read a, a quote here, Q, from an article I was reading on hotpress.com, which is like an older publication. Um, but this is kind of a, kind of what it, what it feels like, um, how people sort of assessed REM when they, when they first hit the scene. The writer couldn't put words on it then. So he's talking about the the um, the person who wrote the review of Murmur when it first hit the scene. Um, but in time, the quartet's significance would become clear here. This was the kind of band America hadn't produced for an age. A bunch of quirky Southern weirdos peddling songs that sounded almost ancient, yet were obviously as much informed by the likes of television and wire as the band or the birds. So they get a lot of comparison to the birds as far as like the jangly pop guitar sound, right? And like, it's that plus, you know, something else, right? It's not, it's not like a sixties throwback sound, but it borrows elements from yeah bands like the birds, right? That guitar sound. Yeah. And, and jangly pop to me, I always go back to the sixties, you know, like that's the sound I think of when I hear jangly pop. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's different. That clean guitar sound that you're going to hear throughout this record. And I feel like that to me is what makes it a college radio song or band, you know, compared to like the heavier rock and roll of the time. Yeah. Cause like this is or of the previous you know, decade. 81 is when radio for Europe came out as a single and so that's when you you know that song would get radio play at college stations you know critics would get a copy of it and review it and like in the same way that the 90s was sort of like a grunge at least was like a response to the hair metal stuff of the 80s you know it feels like the way that rem was being um accepted or whatever by some of these critics and stuff was like this was a a response to the classic rock. The 70s was all about that hard, harder rock, classic rock sound that we now think about like Zeppelin and Boston and Van Halen or even The Who, stuff like that. And this was like sort of a return to more, like they said, more that, that jangly pop guitar, lighter guitar sound, more straightforward rock songs that didn't have any of that like edge to it, right? But then we had the cars too, right? And the new wave hit. Yeah, exactly. Just a couple of years before that. So, exactly. um, so Radio Free Europe was that also their first single? Yeah. So the yeah Radio Free Europe was the first. Yeah, was the first song that. Um, and the funny thing is the flip side, and we're gonna play this song later, was um, sitting still. So I don't know if that was the version that made it to Murmur, but. Um, Sitting Still is one of my favorite tracks on Murmur, and we're going to play that later. Let me say, because this is piggybacks exactly like what uh, piggybacks off exactly what we were saying a second ago. So here's a um, here's a quote from uh, Peter Buck, uh, which was the uh, guitar player. He says, "Murmur came out at a time where it was unusual. Nothing else sounded like it that year." Uh, this is what he told the Chicago Tribune at the time. He says, after the punk thing died down, everything went back to the same old synth pop. We helped bring back the feeling of the local rock band, do-it-yourself sort of thing. And that makes that makes total sense. And that's why this record even has the, it has the garage rock label on it, which is interesting to think about because we associate garage rock with a very different thing when it yeah. comes to like the 2000s and early 2000s, the bands like the strokes and stuff. But I think probably that label is thrown on them maybe because of the, like he's saying the do it yourself kind of, kind of thing. Right. 
I mean, it's funny him saying that everything went back to the same old synth. I think he's pop. probably talking about right after this, right? Because it's not like eighty. It's not like Murmur came out and all the, the synth pop new wave bands of the eighties stopped making that kind of music. They're saying that among, like amongst all of that, Murmur came out. And that's why it was so different because it wasn't oh, yeah. what all I these other synth pop bands were doing at the yeah. time. So they sort of like planted the flag, they, right? They stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah, and then a lot of alt rock bands came out of came out of that wave, you know, that college rock wave and stuff like that. All right, well, let's jump into our first song here. So yeah, we're talking about their first full length record, Murmur, came out in 1983. Let me read the roster to you again. So Michael Stipe, obviously a singer. Peter Buck, guitar player. He also plays the mandolin and the banjo. So, you know, everybody remembers the the, the mandolin on um, Losing My Religion, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Mike Mills on the bass guitar, backing vocals, and then Bill Berry on drums. So that's the main, like, four members that sort of, like, were were there all the way through, like, the, the mid-90s, right? And then... Those first three have been there the entire time, right? But Bill Berry dropped off at some point around, you know, 97 or so. But anyway, this is R.E.M. for basically their rise up into like superstardom, right? So anyway, let's jump into the first song here. I'm going to actually go to the very next track on the record. And this song is called Pilgrimage. Yeah, dude. So, like, this is a good example of, like, a lot of the things that make R.E.M. so different. Like, his lyrics are always so cryptic. You know what I mean? Extremely. Was it a two-headed cow? What is he talking about? Uh, Who knows, dude? But, like, that's how he's always... I mean, this is their 
some of their first stuff. He's always been this way. And like even with Radio Free Europe, um, you know, some of the words are like indecipherable at times. And apparently that was kind of just the way he wrote music back then. Like here's a quote from from Stipe. Um, this is something he told Alternative America in 1983. He said the earlier songs were incredibly fundamental, real simple songs that you could write in five minutes. Most of them didn't have any words. I just got up and howled and hollered a lot. A few years later, he described Radio Free Europe as complete babbling. <laughs> and and that's the thing that we actually... I remember there was a quote. What made Miracle Legion different from R.E.M.? Because they got a lot of comparisons, right? Was that with Michael Stipe, the way he wrote lyrics, it was always, yeah, this kind of like cryptic, mysterious kind of stuff. And Mark Mulcahy would always write really straightforward songs about like nostalgia and youth and stuff like that. And, it, you know, you didn't have to like try to figure out what the hell a two-headed cow is referencing and stuff like that. <laughs> That's you know? funny. I, I just, this just reminded me, I, I revisited our interview with David Brown and he says the same thing about, uh, you know, the music, like the, that kind of second wave of of rock that was hitting around this time and he i remember him mentioning michael stipe uh you know and rem being you know one of those kind of weird sounding bands that cropped up where you're like you don't really understand what he's saying half the time yeah (laughs) and yeah that's that's yeah definitely with with rem so did i'm wondering if you know a lot of um songwriters will if if they've got a, a melody in mind first they will just kind of have these place holder sounds you know and yeah they'll get to the lyrics later yeah i wonder if that was part of it you know where it just and turned into the the yeah all that babbling just stayed stuck with it and it didn't really matter what the words were you know yeah i mean i know when you you know there's um have have you ever seen some of the um song exploder episodes on netflix no i haven't i haven't watched it yet i mean i used to listen to the podcast all the time well they had an episode on losing my religion and, you know, they were talking about all the different ways that people interpret the song, you know, and it's not exactly about what on like face value, what you think it'd be about. Right. So um, you'd have to go watch the episode to get the full gist of it. But they interview Stipe and he kind of talks about you know, this is what it's actually about, you know, but a lot of people connected to it in the 90s, you know, for different reasons. But I, um, can, I can see why. With, yeah. With so like, like, you that. know uh the lyrics on this song that we just played pilgrimage you know it says i'm gonna here's the chorus wait no i'm gonna read the the first verse they called the clip a two-headed cow your hate clipped and distant your luck with pilgrimage huh what (laughs) what like Like, what is that even a a magazine clip we're talking about a gun here what are we what are we talking about (laughs) yeah it could be who knows Two-headed cow? I mean, that's probably... Uh, I'm sure that's a reference to something yeah. that I'm not smart Some, enough to understand. Something. Right. But anyway, let's go to the next song here, Q. So, we're going to jump down a few tracks, I believe. So, uh, I'm, let me mention this, because uh, we like to talk about the singles here. Uh, so, Radio Free Europe, obviously. But Talk About the Passion was another single. So, that was the two singles on this record. Uh, talk about the passion is another good one, but um, but yeah, we're not going to play that cue because we don't play singles here. We don't play singles here, dude. Yeah, on no filler. All right, we're going to jump down to Moral Kiosk. This is track number five. Magic pillow under 
feel like it's kind of hard to appreciate this stuff hearing it this many years later with all the bands that came after this sound right and that kind of copied it and evolved it but it's also still pretty amazing to hear that because like there are so many bands even to this day that that sound so much like this yeah well that's a good it's interesting you said that because here's a quote from um the pitchfork article that came out um in this was sort of a review of the um, deluxe edition when it was uh released Back in 2008, there was a deluxe edition that came out. And this is exactly what you're talking about, Q. There's a historical component to Murmur that often gets lost. In 1983, R.E.M. sounded unique. No bands were combining these particular influences in this particular way, which made this debut sound not only new, but even subversive, a sharp reimagining of rock tropes. 25 years and 14 albums later, our familiarity with REM means that Murmur has lost some of what made it revolutionary upon release. This is exactly what you're talking about. So, like, yeah. it's hard to to appreciate just how different this sound was because you and I weren't even alive yet. And by the time we were listening and paying attention to rock music, you know, they were they were REM by that point. They were the, they were the iconic legendary band. That, that they that they still are right so like yeah it's it's really hard you know it's one of those things where it's like i wish i was there so i could really understand and appreciate what made it so different but yeah you know you think about when we actually did start paying attention to rock or like starting you know 2000 diving probably. in yeah early yeah. 2000s so that was 20 years after murmur came out so right exactly yeah, we lost all that like you know what makes it so great <laughs> yeah well and um speaking of just another thing that made stipe different as a vocalist at least you heard it sort of in like toward the end of that clip he's almost like yodeling almost he would he would do strange things with his vocals like that and and like what pitchfork was saying here no other rock band had taken all of these different influences and merged them in this way even things like that that appear out of left field you know they yeah. all just like worked together somehow and um, yeah, something else that I'm going to talk about here, which is interesting. I just learned about this right now, Cube. This was from like, an, you know, it, basically in this deluxe edition of the CD, there were like quotes and stuff from um, the co-founder of IRS Records, which was the, the first label that signed them and put Murmur out. But um, apparently the way that the band, the way that they made music was almost like egalitarian and like like a democracy almost so like each member was received equal songwriting credit on each track on each album and reportedly each member not only had equal voice and decisions but the band would do nothing unless everyone agreed unanimously wow. so what the uh record or the irs records co-founder jay boberg uh what he said was um it was a unique four-person democracy that in practice maximize the talents and insights of four people rather than just one leader calling the shots. And I think that also speaks to just how strong each of them were, right? Because if each of them as musicians had things to contribute in the songwriting process, that just goes to show how, you know, REM is REM because of the strength of all four members, right? Dude, that reminds me so much, just like the way that he described that. That was what David Byrne was having such a hard time with before Remain in Light came out, right? He was with talking heads, yeah. Yeah, he started to feel like he was too much of like a dictator almost, you know? <laughs> like no yeah. one had any veto power over his decisions. So Yeah, well that was a new wave, right? Yeah. Talking heads were kind of the band where that that term was almost coined to describe them. But yeah, coming out of the seventies, like that was the era, the decade of like these rock gods, you know, like where like the front man or maybe even the front guitar player, like Jimmy Page. Right. Were like elevated to like God status. And like, yeah, called the shots, like was the band. And with a band like REM, they weren't featured on the album covers, you know, they weren't, right. 
there's there weren't photos of him in the liner notes apparently or the inner sleeves and stuff like that because it it wasn't about them right it was about the music you know yeah i like that i like that i yeah i think that's cool right little things like that oddly made them stand out um but i think that that kind of went on to be the norm you know not too many bands appear on the cover of their records anymore no it's just not a thing no you know all right let's jump on down to the next pick here this song is called catapult can definitely see rem being an influence on the bands that that like in the the next wave from like sonic youth even into bands like like you know the grunge bands that happened right after that with like the guitar tone and maybe some of the chords are a little bit on the grungy side maybe the chord progressions but i mean definitely not like the the the, the distortion you know well maybe like no distortion maybe, at all maybe like smashing pumpkins ask yeah i could see it if which was a little more shoegazy grunge yeah psychedelic a little bit yeah but yeah you know this was the you know rem sort of like carried rock into the 90s right like it it was like the next maybe sound the next iteration of rock that right. brought us up to never mind right if you want to put it that way and i know for a fact this is well well documented that kurt cobain was a huge rem fan michael sipe was like in talks with him leading up to his suicide like oh, you know man. saying that he was you know hey let's work together like you know trying trying to to, to keep him interested right oh, can keep you imagine and stuff yeah michael stipe and kurt cobain working together yeah they, they would slate it to happen. What would that have been like? But yeah, um, talk about like a torch, torch passing type moment, right? Yeah. If that would have happened. But anyway, um, yeah, just another simple song. This one's actually about childhood. At least that's what the lyrics would make you think. Yeah, I was getting some Miracle Legion vibes. <laughs> or like uh, real estate. Yeah, here's the lyrics. When we were little boys, when we were little girls... It's nine o'clock. Don't try to turn it off. Coward in a hole. Open your mouth. A question. Did we miss anything? So it's nine o'clock. Don't try to turn it off. I feel like that's maybe like 
don't turn off the lights like you know nine o'clock is like bedtime for most kids maybe it's like let me let me stay up a little bit i don't know that's just reading between the lines here but did we miss anything makes me feel like he's he's looking back at childhood and saying like what did what did, you know did i miss out on anything as a kid you know i know for this is what everybody experiences this typically if you have a a relatively uh, normal quote unquote childhood you know you always look back on on it with with um longing to go back to childhood right so yep absolutely anyway not exactly sure what catapult is referring to in this song but this is a this is a really straightforward song there's no you know pretty pretty straightforward lyrics but um yeah no no symbolism here that yeah. we know of Maybe yeah, it's just I mean, more catapult. Is, who knows what that's referring to? But um, yeah, it's talking about being being little boys and girls. Uh, a mother is referenced in verse two. Uh, we in step in hand. Your mother remembers this. Hear the howl of the rope. A question. All right, it's starting to get pretty cryptic over here. <laughs> the porch could be darker. The march could be darker. Hmm. Hmm. Well, anyway, I don't have to. I don't have to look up any words in these lyrics. <laughs> I think it was Moral Kiosk. There was like a reference to, like a Greek. I, I had to look at the. Uh, I had to look it up. But he he references like, yeah, she was laughing like a hora, which is some Greek Greek goddesses of the seasons. I mean, that to me. Sometimes I think that college rock is like referring to some of these lyrics that are a little bit more like, you know, you might have to sit through th- some college courses to, to know what they're talking about, you know? James Mercer of The Shins, he got that. Uh, he was called out for that all the time. I mean, his yeah. lyrics are like very like um, scholarly. like that. Yeah, just, I mean, it just tells you Michael Stipe was a, a, a well-read, learned dude, you know? And same with Sting, his lyrics and The Police. Like man, I, I gotta bust out a, a encyclopedia. Yeah, it's like don't make me read an encyclopedia, <laughs> dude. I'm just trying yeah. to rock out. All right, let's go to the last song here that I'm gonna play for us. And this is probably my favorite track on the record. I think this song is just so beautiful, and harmonizing on this song is is amazing. And what I like about this is like actually something that happened in Pilgrimage, the first track that we played. It seems like what they did, at least on this early record, was like Michael Stipe is singing almost by himself the first time through the chorus, and then the the backing vocals get added later, and it's like a this nice like it takes the chorus up a notch, right? And suddenly it's like, oh, now I'm feeling the energy behind these words and stuff a little bit more because then they're putting emphasis on certain words and stuff. Anyway, this is a good example of that on this song here. So again, this was actually released as the b-side on the the radio free europe single so this was one of the first rem songs that that people heard if they got a hold of the single the song is called sitting still Sun and your 
song really great it just draws me in every time i love it yeah and so you heard kind of what i was talking about first chorus it's just him saying that line i can hear you i can hear you second chorus you know here comes mike mills right maybe even peter buck i don't know if he ever did backup vocals but it sort of i don't know it just elevates it a little bit it makes it it it, it makes you pay attention to it um, and then at the very end, the way the song closes out, you know, the chorus is, I can hear you, I can hear you. The last thing that Michael's type says is, can you hear me? So I don't know what these lyrics are about, man. I was trying, dude, trying to figure it out. <laughs> but this is, here's an example of the, of how he does kind of these, he like a turn of phrase almost. There's this, the, the opening line of the chorus, up to par and Katie Barr. Or Katie Bars. So in 1991, he acknowledged that this line references an old Southern saying, Katie bar the door, which means trouble is coming. So the saying is Katie bar the door, as in bar up the door because here comes trouble. And he just shortens it to Katie bar. Yeah. Up to par and Katie bar. That's, you know, I was, so I've watched, uh, this one British series that I got into uh, pretty hardcore for a while. I got through the whole series, but they do that in Britain too, like with really, oh, really yeah. popular sayings. They'll only say like half of it. You know? I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. And, and over time, you just know what it means. Yeah. 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 That is kind of kind of what he's doing, right? But like as a lyricist, if you start out writing your songs by just howling or whatever, like they were saying, like he, he ne- didn't necessarily have words yet. He would just have melodies that he would sing. Yeah, well, sometimes Katie Bar the Door is going to have to become Katie Bar because, you know what, I'm trying to fit it into this lyric here. So I think that's cool, man. Like, yeah. you know, you should have I, that I think freedom. that's always, to me, a good, like the a sign of a good lyricist, right? Yeah. I don't think I could. I, my, my brain doesn't work that way, dude. I'm too, I, I, I don't think I could do it. Yeah, I would just toss I'm it too and, literal. and think of, same, same here, dude. Because I would, I would already be stuck in the formula that I created. Yeah. And I'd think, Katie bar the door is not going to fit there. Got to find something else. Yeah, because I'll find <laughs> another phrase here. Yeah. Because no one's going to know what I what I mean if all I say is Katie bar. <sighs> Michael's type's like, they'll figure it out. <laughs> but that's the, uh, yeah, and I guess that's the point. Like, So he actually went on to say, um, you know, because this is kind of like I was saying earlier about his reference to like, I would just get up and howl and holler, right? In 2011, uh, an interview with The Guardian Stipe says that um, he eventually came to understand that this was his own distinct way of communicating, that he'd found an intuitive new form. He says, I do have something to offer, but it's just in a different dialect, a different language. Yeah, I would say Michael Stipe definitely speaks a different language, dude, (laughs) Um, as proven here by these lyrics. But um, yeah, it took him till 2011 to realize it. That uh, he had something to offer, you know. That's funny. Classic, right? And I was reading, a, I think it was Peter Buck was talking about how like, you know, and this is exactly, we've we've heard this sentiment out of rock stars quite a bit, like through all, you know, 
throughout the many different bands and albums that we've covered on this podcast. He was saying, yeah, you know, I thought we'd put out a couple of records, you know, I'd make some money and then I'd go back and work at a record store. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what the lead singer of Presidents of the United States of America said. Yeah. Or no, 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 I'm sorry. It was Toadies. It was the Toadies guy. Oh, that's right. It was Toadies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so the funny thing is of the, the, the Toadies members, you know, they actually were working at a record store where they all met. Same story here. Apparently, Peter Buck was working at a record store and that's where he met Michael's type. So, nice. hey, you know what? If you're a musician, go work at a record store. That's where you're going to find your next Michael Stipe, your next lead singer. Definitely going to find some more musicians. It's way way more likely yeah. to find them there. You would think so. Yeah, so uh, here's another lyric here. This is, again, from Mike Mills. So it seems like Drummer never got any uh, – he, he never got invited to, to, to the interviews because I'm, I'm always reading stuff from all three members except for, for um, Barry, the drummer. But um, – he says here, if you grew up in New York or L.A., it would change your viewpoint on just about everything. There's no time to sit back and think about things. Our music is closer to everyday life. Things that happen to you during the week, things that are real, it's great just to bring out an emotion. Better to make someone feel nostalgic or wistful or excited or sad. Amen. Anyway, so, um, you know... The, the thing about this band and, and this record in particular is, like I was saying, it didn't really get much widespread acclaim, but the music critics at the time like saw it for what it was, right? And this is huge if you think about it. Rolling Stone picked this record as its best album of 1983, beating out Michael Jackson's Thriller, The Police's Synchronicity, and U2's War. Holy that's moly. huge, and this that's, is their debut that's record. Massive. I, yeah, I had no idea. I mean, idea. think about that. That's that's insane yeah. if you think about it, right? Wow. And here we go, dude. Buck noted in 2002, the IRS was mind boggled by the album's positive reviews, especially in the British press. British press. Hold on. Especially in the British. God, fuck me. Especially in the British press since REM had not yet toured that country. So it was even getting popular over in, in countries that that really had no business knowing about it yet, you know? You know, it's always nice when your record label believes in you. <laughs> well, Why they would didn't they even, say they, that? I mean, they didn't even think it was... Nobody thought that, that it was going to catch on because it was so different. And they didn't, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I was saying, Peter Buck didn't even want... They didn't want the success necessarily. They just wanted to put out some records, do their own thing. Yep. Um, yeah, Michael Stipe, there's a, a quote from him saying he wasn't necessarily ready for the success that they got later. He was saying that um, had Murmur or the album that came out after that, Reckoning, sold five million copies or whatever, actually did well. He he probably w- he said he wouldn't be here to talk about it, almost claiming that he would have either killed himself or quit the band. You know, because he wouldn't have been ready for the success, and we know that has that has happened. You know, we've lost, oh, we've yeah. lost people because of that kind of thing. Oh, where it's yeah. like too, too much sec- success comes on at you. You know, when you're not prepared for it. One more quote here, Q, to close us out. Uh, this is again from the HotPress.com article that was talking about um, the record decades later. It said, for the seeming minority who still adhere to possibilities of guitar, bass, drum, and voice, the Georgia Quartet were the second coming, perhaps only to the Smiths. The Trifids, the Bad Seeds, and the Water Boys, offered as valuable an alternative to permafrosted synth combos and dullard dinosaurs hogging the charts. At that time, more than any sense, rock and roll needed a band to believe in, and REM were it. So there you go. Nice. I, I like that quote about like permafrosted synth combos and dullard dinosaurs. Meaning like the charts at the time were those synth pop bands or the old carryovers from the 70s that were still putting out music, you know. <laughs> the old dinosaurs. Dude, yeah. and what's funny to me when you think about the landscape of rock, Metallica's Kill 'Em All came out the same year. That kind of stuff always blows my mind to remember. So, like, 
you know, Metallica was kind of, I think thrash metal at least was sort of the next iteration of metal, if you will. And so like, you know, this was just kind of the eighties were like a time of like, Hey man, let's, let's take a look at this rock and see, and see what we can do with it. You know? And yeah. Then, it is cool that it, that it was happening alongside R.E.M. Yeah. And, and college radio alongside yep. Yep. metal, the, you know, the next wave of metal. All right, Q. Well, that's it. That's our look at REM's murmur. I would, I would do, I would do another episode on reckoning uh, if we wanted to keep keep it going. But I think we had talked about doing a certain record, and I'm actually kind of excited about this. So I think, I think we could we could do it, Q, because I had I had played this band as a what you heard and was obsessed with the song that I heard from them. And I think this would be a good, an interesting, interesting album to cover after Murmur. Catherine Wheels Chrome. They're like a shoegaze mixed with like a new wave sound. And I hadn't heard of them until like last year and they blew me away. Blew me and away too, man. The, the the two songs that you played from them. Yeah, Chrome came out in 93, so a decade after Murmur. And, you know, this is kind of, not more of the same, but like sort of a, almost, a, you know, it's an it, under the the mega umbrella of alt rock. Like this is another band that's under there. So I think that'd be a good place to go. So next week, we're going to talk about Catherine Wheel and we're going to talk about their 1993 album, Chrome. Totally down to, to dive deeper into some Catherine Wheel for sure. Yeah. And this record is amazing, man. The There's a song on here that, 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 that pumps me up, dude, every time I hear it. So we're going to have to play that. Um, that, like, gets me emotional when I hear it, dude. I don't want to say goosebumps, Q, but... Um, oh, I know what smi- you mean. Smiles for miles, you know? Smiles for miles, yeah. <laughs> All right. So that'll be next week. Um, but, yeah. Where can you find us, Q? Well, our home is the Pantheon Podcast Network, which is the podcast network for music lovers. Uh, you can find us on PantheonPodcasts.com along with dozens of other fantastic music-heavy podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at NoFillerPodcasts. You can reach out to us there, send us a, a message on Instagram, we'll, we'll get back to you. You can also email us at NoFillerPodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you've been hurting lately, and maybe we'll play... Uh, one of your favorites for our next outro song uh, with our monthly What You Heard episode. And as always, thank you to AKG for supporting the network. And yeah, next week we'll cover some Catherine Wheel. Until then, thank you as always for listening. My name is Quentin. My name is Travis. Y'all take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.